Welcome to Improve with Stephanie, a thought-provoking podcast about business improvement strategy, leadership, and innovative technology. Improve with Stephanie will interview CEOs, CFOs, thought leaders, and innovators. Stephanie, CEO of Nelson Legacy Enterprises International, is our host. She is crazy passionate about business and the evolution of people. Thank you for joining. Now let's listen in. And now, this week's sponsor. The Virtual Paragon Company is a business support service that helps organizations grow and scale through social media marketing, design, content creation, automation, sales funnels, and platform setup for digital products. The Virtual Paragon offers a commitment to achieve competitive results online. Content creators accomplish results such as exponential email list growth, increased digital product sales, coupled with an amazing virtual customer experience that explodes your brand's customer base. For detailed information about the Virtual Paragon company, please visit www.thevirtualparagon.com. The Improvement Award highlights local, regional, national, or international organizations that are excellently innovative, improving the lives of people and communities. If you are interested in receiving the Improvement Highlight Award on the Improve with Stephanie podcast, please email info at NelsonLegacyEnterprises.com. The Improvement Highlight Award goes to the Nelson Foundation. The Nelson Foundation, founded by Alexis Nelson and named after her father, originated in 2006. The purpose and mission of the Nelson Foundation is to equip first-time investors to build wealth and achieve economic mobility through small business partnerships. To learn more, please visit www.rootedinllc.org. Let's welcome today's guest. Lindsay Quinter is lead design thinking strategist for Eaton, a global power management company that provides solutions to help customers effectively manage power more efficiently, safely, and sustainably. Lindsay is building an education platform that enables Eaton teams to learn and practice design thinking and sustain an enterprise-wide culture of human-centered design. She has over 10 years of experience leading diverse, multidisciplinary teams through complex business problems by combining design thinking and clear communications. Lindsay takes an active role in cultivating the design community in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She has taught design courses as an adjunct professor at local colleges, and she is in her seventh year of service on the board of AIGA Pittsburgh, a chapter of the nation's largest professional association for design. So thank you, Lindsay, so much for joining us today. Thank you for coming on Improve With Me uh, so that we can have a great conversation. Every um, podcast, I start with the same question, and it is, what lights your fire? Well, Stephanie, thank you for having me. 
Um, what lights my fire? So I think there's, there's two key components to that. Um, one is just a general idea of problem solving. Um, you know, I like to, I like the process of, of working through some messy problem or situation um, and getting to a solution and, and creating something that's new, um, that's a better experience for, for people. So I think um, how that relates to the work that I do today is very much around human-centered design. So solving real problems for people and creating meaningful experiences for people. Um, and the aspects of problem solving that I think um, are just really what lights my fire um, are, you know, the process of discovery, being able to explore, you know, creativity, collaboration, all of those things that go into um, getting to a solution. And then I would say the second thing that, that lights my fire um, is clear communication. So I'm a big advocate for um, really trying to make information, especially complicated or messy information, easy for people to understand and engage with. Um, and that often includes a discipline of visual thinking um, that I, I've learned throughout my career and I think is so important, especially in the context of collaboration. Um, and when I say visual thinking, it really means asking everyone who is having these thoughts as part of this collaborative design process or just any process in general to share those thoughts and those ideas in a tangible form whether it's writing it down in words or drawing a picture of it it's like how can we help each other understand each other um, by putting our ideas down on paper and, and getting them in front of each other and talking through talking through them um, and that portion is really why I've gotten so involved in like education and training. Um, the, the core of that is because I can help other people learn and understand new things. Um, so problem solving and clear communication, those are my things. <laughs> I mean, aren't those like the things to, communication is like the top, uh, I would say it's the, the main uh, issue in business and life, if you can't communicate, how far do you go, right? How does life treat you if you can, if you're unable to communicate? Um, so I feel like those are, and problem solving, my gosh, it leads you down so many paths, right? For mm -hmm. you to really pursue all kinds of things in life. Um, so those are two great concepts to light your fire every single day and it gives your your life a sense of purpose right like being able to help people mm -hmm. clearly communicate and being able to help them solve their problems um, whether it be from whatever from a to z right so yep what has who has influenced you what has been your kind of top influencers not even just in industry but just in life in general yeah, it's it's tough for me to to think of an of an individual to point to. You know, I feel like um, of course there's there's people throughout my life um, that I think have been influences or mentors. Um, you know, growing up, my parents were a big influence on me. I was part. I grew up as part of a big family, and I feel like they've taught me discipline and self respect and all of those things that you should learn as a kid. Um, they've also taught me the power of teamwork, um, and I would say that actually is what influences me the most now, 
is collaboration. Um, so I would I wouldn't say there's you know a specific individual that comes to mind, but there's so many people that I work with on a daily basis, and um, that process of bringing all of these folks together that have different perspectives, they they all offer different things I can learn from. Um, and I think you know what's really um, influential or serves as mentorship for me is the constructive dialogue you can have with people. So being able to get um, others that you're working with to engage in that kind of dialogue where people are willing to share what they like or they don't like or what's working for them, what's not working for them. Um, and then taking that feedback and doing something with it and trying to understand it. Um, I feel like that that's what influences me the most is just the process of collaboration and and learning from other people through that. Um, and yeah, I would say that and then also um, in my first job out of school, I, I worked for a firm that really focused on on clear communication and facilitating groups of people um, and really focusing on um, good design and, and solving real problems. So I would say uh, all of the people I've worked with in that capacity have have gotten me to where I am today. Um, so yeah, I, I've met a lot of people along the way um, that have influenced me. But but the other thing I would point out too, like and you know I think it's important to acknowledge is like you know sort of the the introspective part of mentorship and like. Um, the ability to recognize opportunities for self-improvement and like um, getting yourself into a discipline where, you know, when you fail at something or you experience disappointment, whether that's like your own disappointment or the disappointment of others that you feel like you, you know, you cause, um, that's a moment for growth. And like, how do you use that experience as a way to shape your path forward? Um, yeah, so that's that's how I think of influence and mentorship. Oh it's my It's really gosh. through collaboration and, and personal growth. <laughs> right. So I feel like that's powerful primarily because collaboration from a mentorship influence perspective is kind of a different way of thinking about it to me, right? Because typically mm -hmm. it's somebody that you either look up to or admire and they're kind of like pouring down into you, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. the things that they've learned, but it really should be like a collaborative experience, right? Where both yeah. people are making an exchange of growth. And so I love how you kind of put that in perspective, um, for the mentors who are out there, they should be considering themselves as collaborators and the people who are mentees, don't sell yourself short, right? Make sure you understand mm -hmm. what you bring to the table um, because what you have could really be um, a growth moment even for the mentor or the influencer, you know? Um, so I love the way you said that. Now, the, the thing that I would ask you is let's talk a little bit about you know, what I've been calling design thinking, but you educated me and basically shared that it's human-centered design. So what is it? You know, a lot of people call it either of those terms. There are other terms. There's customer, some people, you know, companies focus on customers. So they might call it customer experience or customer focus instead of human-centered, um, or they might call it user, user experience. 
um, there's a lot of ways to, to sort of use different terms. Um, but I think what it boils down to is people. And some of it has, you know, it's some of it is in the context of your business and what you're trying to do. Um, the work that I'm, I'm doing where, where I work now is very much around um, human-centered design because we believe that the, the principles and the process and the methods that a, that a designer can use in order to create better experiences for people, those can be applied to you know, products that go out to customers, but they can also be applied to internal processes. They can be applied to any experience that involves people. And so when I think of human-centered design and design thinking, I define it as human-centered design is creating better experiences for people by solving real problems for them. And design thinking is how we teach this skill set that designers have to people who might not be trained in design. Um, because I, you know, design is really um, something that everyone can take ownership in and be a part of in terms of, you know, when I, I think of design, I think of it very similarly to the way I think of problem solving. So um, everyone can be involved in the problem solving process. And so design thinking helps people practice human-centered design. I mean, so for me, human-centered design and design design thinking may be the umbrella, but human or human-centered design actually may be the umbrella and design thinking is like a spoke or is it vice versa? Yeah, I, yeah, I think of it as, I think of it that way. I think of human-centered design as a approach or a practice, like it's, it's a mindset. So um, always keeping people that are part of the experience that, that you're designing. So the people at the end of your experience, whether that's a user um, or someone else who's an important stakeholder in that experience, um, keeping them at the center of your entire you know, process in terms of the decisions you're making um, for the experience that you're, you're creating. Um, design thinking is, is almost a, a different type of thing. It's like a, a way to um, help people practice that approach. So like one is an approach and one is a way to teach that approach. Um, that's sort of how I frame it. And I would say there's a lot of people out there who might frame it slightly differently. That's just how it really makes sense in my mind. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, you're the practitioner. You're the person who does it every single day. You're the expert in this conversation for sure. Um, so I definitely um, totally understand that, right? The concept that design thinking is applying the framework, right? The frame of, mm -hmm. framework of human-centered design, which makes a lot of sense. And, and so tell me a little bit of of the value of having this um, kind of framework and practice in your business um, from a technical, I mean, from a technical perspective, an improvement, a continuous improvement perspective. I mean, you pick one. I don't, I'm not even going to give you like a, <laughs> you know, got to talk about it from this perspective, just where's the value of it and how can um, companies really deploy it in their businesses well? Yeah, there, there's a lot of aspects to that. So I'll, I'll just try to cover a few. I would say the value comes from, initially it just comes from what I've been saying all along, you know, solving real problems for people and like not overlooking that idea of real problems. So making sure that um, 
the solution you're creating will benefit the user um, because oftentimes, and, and I've seen it a lot in the work that I do, um, especially in, in larger businesses, um, it's easy to get caught up in technology and or um, sort of even your own personal experiences. And so sometimes you, you jump into the solution really fast. Um, what design thinking helps us do is back up and actually understand the experiences of others and define the right problem to solve for them rather than, um, you know, use technology to build something really great and hope that it, it solves a problem for people or make, make a product or a solution or experience based on the assumptions we have about people or the, the personal bias we bring to the table. So I think design thinking removes, removes assumptions, it removes bias. It also, just because of the way um, design thinking has um, been shaped over time, there's a lot of methods that are part of design thinking. And so they give you a proven way to work through a problem. And once you learn that methodology, which of course it takes time to learn, um, you can one, collaborate really, really well because you have these methods that help and support that collaboration. Um, but you can also become much more efficient at that collaboration um, because you have this methodology that you know how to apply and to use. Um, so I, I would say the, the last thing I would mention in terms of the value of it is that because um, human-centered design really um, emphasizes doing user research, so involving the user in the design process and and that means talking to the user listening to what they have to say observing um, there's a lot of ways you can collect information about how the user um, experiences a, a product or a service or or a process um, and because you are are going through that research process you're creating all of this evidence that really supports decision making so um, because you have all of these quotes and stories and, um, you know, artifacts from conducting research, it makes it really easy to make your case of why this is the right solution um, and we should invest in that solution. So those are just a few aspects, I would say. <laughs> oh my gosh. And for me in the audience that I serve, spot on, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. design thinking <clears throat> or human-centered design as a framework you said something powerful by saying it's a it's a tool for efficient collaboration among the team but it's mm -hmm. also a very critical path for user research if you're not mm -hmm. creating a service or a product whether physical or you know kind of abstractly you know what are you what are we doing here you know what i mean because mm -hmm. the, you won't survive in the market if you're not really tapping in so can you name like maybe one approach that people can use or execute against to um, really tap into what the user, how to deploy against what they gather in their user research process. For instance, let me give you an example. Or let me clarify that question. So mm -hmm. I've gathered that the users are frustrated with um, the app and they can't 
they can't uh, move on in the next phase of collecting their email or something. I don't know, something crazy like that, right? Um, mm -hmm. Quick, quick enough. They want to be able to just click and move. Like, so they gather that information. How do you take that frustration and use it effectively inside this framework or concept? Yeah, I mean, in that scenario, I think the first thing I would do, like my, my designer mindset flips on pretty fast. I'm, I'm like, I would ask why, like, I would try to understand why, you know, what is causing the user to behave that way, but also why is that their goal? Um, you know, like trying to understand the, the causes and effects of, of their behavior as well. So I think I would one continue to observe, but also ask questions about it to try to understand some of the underlying, you know, ideas there. Um, but, you know, once you have all of that research, then you can start to um, explore ways to solve it. But the, the thing about, um, you know, this, this discipline of design thinking is that you're not going to get to the right answer the first time. So, you know, you, you might say, okay, well, if this is what's frustrating to you, what if it worked? in this way or that way, you know, like coming up with multiple solution directions and putting those in front of the user. Uh, one of the biggest things in design thinking too is this concept of rapid prototyping um, and prototyping in a way that's more disposable. So like you don't need to rebuild the app to figure out whether um, you can solve that by changing the order of the buttons or creating a different hierarchy of the buttons or removing the buttons altogether and coming up with a different solution like voice or, you know, I don't know, something else. Um, you can prototype those things with paper and a marker <laughs> and get them in front of users and get their input on them before you even begin to develop anything. Um, so I feel like that's one of the biggest things in your toolkit is just this idea of rough prototyping um, in order to communicate your ideas and get them in front of users and get their input on them early on before you decide to make any type of solution. Thank you for that, because I think sometimes people need the practicality of how you deploy some of these frameworks. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, it, that I needed that, right? So that I can say, okay, so it literally is being able to gather that information and just take it right back to the product, right? Or the service mm -hmm. that you're trying to, and literally, and, to, and then you're just back in the loop of, you know, the agile perspective, right? You're just back in the loop of testing it and seeing how the effect of it and coming back to how to um, just solve the problem that the user is experiencing. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about this concept of, um, you know, problem solving from the user perspective. I did a, a podcast a couple uh, episodes ago, basically talking about how I, you know, the team and I made an epic mistake. Um, because we were kind of in a waterfall methodology where we were trying to come, you know, uh, we were trying to bring to close um, a phase and we overlooked that user support <laughs> was mm -hmm. taking hours for people to get responses to their issues. And mm -hmm. so when they went, so when it went live, um, it was supposed to be like a multi-million dollar return and they made nothing because we overlooked it. Mm -hmm. That was like 
the most epic fail of my like my career <laughs> yeah but i bet you learned a lot from that <laughs> did i learn a lot i learned a lot and so when you start talking about user research i was like oh oh buddy right <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. how important is that because if the user is not satisfied um then your clients are not satisfied right so the user is everything and so this whole concept of human-centered design and design thinking is so paramount because if you're not incorporating that in your problem solving right mm -hmm. you're doing yourself from my perspective a really big disservice um when you're talking about becoming more efficient you can't be efficient at something that you're not solving for right you're not if you're not giving people the actual solution to their problem it doesn't matter how fast you take them nowhere you know what i mean yeah so yeah um, i want i want to um touch on something you were saying there because it, it sparked a thought for me that i didn't mention earlier which was you know a lot of people think of user research as like a super daunting task or something that's just going to take time and sometimes it, it does take time and effort, especially if you're, you know, going out to where a product is and maybe that product is not that easy to access and, and stuff like that. And so I don't want to say that it doesn't take time or effort, but it, and it does. But there's other ways you can do user research that are low touch or simple or, you know, it doesn't always have to take a lot of time. But even still, um, you know, it's worth putting the time in because I can, from the example you just uh, briefly covered, I can tell that you probably spent a ton of time developing that solution and to find out that it wasn't the right solution and it didn't work at the end <laughs> is like a lot of waste, you know? And so why not do that research at the beginning so that you can save yourself from finding out it's not the right solution in the end. Um, My goodness. And I would, I would say do it throughout the whole process, but yeah. That was like one of the four takeaways, work backwards from the user's expectations. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Instead of building the, te the right technical solution, you adapt the technology to the user's experience. You know what I mean? So that, uh, you know, and if you can't afford to launch every bell and whistle, you know the 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 user's high need uh, service or or product get that one done first mm -hmm. right and then you know release the enhance it the enhancements but i mean it was just it was a it was a terrible epic fail and the reason why is because while i couldn't necessarily be fired from the company um only because i was i had i was an equity owner so you know what are they gonna do just take your equity i mean what mm -hmm. are they gonna do but at the end of the day man i mean reputation is everything mm -hmm. They were like, this company sucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they didn't give us what we needed. So the ripple effect by not tapping into user um, needs and, and, and requirements is just, so it, it literally shifted how we approach and how we problem solve, right? We do not go for, oh, we can, oh, this would be cool to include this technical component because it's the latest thing out there. No, who cares? 
we need to solve for what the user needs and what they you the user wants um and mm -hmm. and and really dealing with with something that you said that the user experience and their emotions as related to that product or service right something mm -hmm. we don't talk about as much as we probably should um at least i know in corporate we don't talk about it as much i'm not saying that i believe that your smaller um businesses do tap in they have time in a, in a sense mm -hmm. to tap into the human emotion the emotional intelligence of consumer behavior mm -hmm. um so that they can make good decisions because they can't afford to waste their time energy and money right? right they just can't do it which is something that i absolutely respect mm -hmm. <laughs> um but when you start getting into the corporate environment you kind of are less stringent unless you're a really you know kind of top quality um, service quality organization. So what do you say to people who, what's the advice you give, I would say to people like me who kind of created this epic failure. Um, and now all of a sudden, oh, we get it. You know, <laughs> we get the whole concept of let's, let's not, uh, don't, don't build it from the technical specs, but build it from the user's needs and requirements. Like what, so when you're shifting the culture of your organization, what's the first step? Yeah, I mean, it's probably too simple of an answer, but it's like in every scenario, you have to sort of just question um, the problem you've been given to solve to begin with um like oftentimes what happens is it's like or you know um it's it's not even a problem that's related to the user it, it's a business goal or it, it's something that it's like um our problem is that we need to improve um the the quality of this thing by 10 percent or what you know whatever your example might be and it's like well that's a business problem like that's a business goal so why do we need to do that for users like who are the people that are part of this problem and what are we trying to do for them you know if if there's for just to keep going with the quality example it's like well why why do we need to get that percentage down like is it because it's um costing people to work overtime is it because we're wasting too much material um and you know like what is the real real problem there so i would say oftentimes we're given like hey we need a we need this solution sometimes that's what we're told uh, we're not even given the problem we're saying here's what give me the solution um and so what i use what i think my biggest advice would be to question the problem and make sure that you're doing the work to understand what the real problem is um that that's then you can start working on solutions <laughs> i mean it's a total shift in how you conduct your business when you've been yeah. solution driven thinking that you're really solving mm -hmm. problems but really mm -hmm. and i love how you said it's a simple thing just question it and that that takes us takes me back to something that we didn't do during that particular failure which was root cause analysis right we did not mm -hmm. examine um from the user perspective we didn't ask the five whys we well why do mm -hmm. you like that why do you want that and what does it really do for you and how do you feel when you're you know what i mean experiencing mm -hmm. that we kind of just went into they need this solution they need this enhancement and we didn't ask that one question why 
And I think that total, it's interesting because it's a simple thing to ask, but companies work the opposite way right? We're just mm -hmm. like, okay, so we need to see a 10% reduction in how much time it takes us to do this so that we can save this amount of money. But, but why? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, how does this, what is the risk and impact to the user? What is the risk and impact to the company long term? Um, mm -hmm. What about creativity? You know what I mean? Like, who, who's going to be creatively involved in, in um, reducing this time? And what limits do we put on the employee or the user by us cutting down, you know, uh, by 10%? What, do we, what are we giving them? What are they gaining? What are they losing? Those are the questions mm -hmm. I think that are really important that we have to tap into. And I know for me, it totally shifted um, because and I was so tech focused. Um, mm -hmm. that, you know, my, I would just geek out at all the technology. Right. But it's not, <laughs> it wasn't solving the problem, um, for a sustainable amount of time. Like it may have solved it quickly, but then, you know, you're re really back at the drawing board. Cause you really didn't solve the core issue. You just solved, uh, the, maybe the, the surface level. Yeah, yeah, I would say technology is a big driver of human-centered design and human-centered innovation because technology inherently makes things more complex. And because things are more complex, how does the user interact with that complexity? Um, so yeah, it's, it's super important to understand how people are involved in the experience of that product, especially if it's a, a product based on complex technology. Definitely. And so I'm going to ask you or say this because I think what we just discussed is a good segue. Um, I'm going to say this statement and you're going to tell me what you think about it. It starts with leadership. What do you think? All right. So I think leadership is um, sort of knowing the, the destination. So um, knowing where things need to go um, and, and, and that can take many forms, you know, you know, knowing the destination doesn't have to be a crystal clear um, destination. It just, it, you could have a general sense of the destination, um, but knowing what that destination is and then being able to give the team um, who, you know, whoever the team might be, um, what it needs to get to that destination. So um, I also think that can take many forms. Sometimes um, a team needs someone to give them specific instruction um, to get to the destination. Sometimes the team knows how to get to the destination. They just need to be motivated to get there <laughs> or they, you know, need someone to listen to them um, while they try to get there. So, um, you know, whatever it is, leadership is really about like getting all of the right pieces in place in order to get to where you know you need to go that better better um better place that you know whatever success means um but what's interesting about what you your phrase um is the word start too so this idea of of starting means like um beginning something or putting something into motion um so starting starting with leadership for me means um, that for something to gain momentum, for something to move, um, a person has to provide what is needed to 
overcome the state of being still. So basically like uh, it starts with leadership means that a person needs to provide that momentum in order to get you going towards that destination. Oh my gosh. Fantastic answer. Right. Like mm-hmm. I really <laughs> connect to the whole, it, the momentum piece. Right. Cause sometimes we t- typically think about leadership from a top down approach. Right. But this literally mm-hmm. means that there's a leader in every person and that yeah, the momentum so. is to get, yes, the momentum is to get started. And so I love that because when people take ownership of the leadership in them, they're much more productive. They're highly motivated. You know, you're encouraging them to be creative creative which leads to like what the a portion of what i really believe my hypothesis for this podcast is that it leads (laughs) to innovation right this human centered human design centered um thinking and approach leads to um organizational innovation and it starts with the leader in you to take ownership of creating the innovation that's that's needed um, and, mm-hmm. and innovation doesn't have to be some massive, you know, technological breakthrough. It could be something as small as instead of, you know, printing the paper out, we now just email the paper out. I mean, it literally could be just that small um, in mm-hmm. how they change in the process or how they change and how they think and, and what happens from there. So from your perspective, what kind of innovation have you seen with you kind of driving this human-centered um, uh, framework and approach to how people conduct their their problem-solving and collaboration? Yeah, uh, that's a, a, a big question. Um, you know, because I, I agree with you. I think that innovation... Um, a lot of people think of it, one, a lot of people immediately jump to technology when they think of innovation, that the solution lies in technology. But I don't, I definitely don't think that that's always the case. Um, Sometimes it is the case, but I don't, I don't think it is always. Um, So so, to me, what's exciting is when you do get those little little successes or, or little moments of innovation, um, like some of the product examples, which I wasn't involved with, but just in generally as a consumer come to mind, um, are like, you know, the, the pop socket on the back of your phone case, like such a simple innovation, like people want to be able to prop their phone up and like, that's innovative. I mean, it, it's, it's a little piece of, you know, rubber and plastic on the back of your phone, but that's an innovation. And it solves um, a problem. It solves the right. real problem. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, a lot of people tend to overthink problems and come up with these crazy solutions that often do involve technology. But I think a lot of the, the best innovation I've seen are, um, you know, simple adjustments. Um, whether that's in a product design or a process improvement, um, you know, like even in process, sometimes it's like, it's as simple as we have way too many people involved. Like, let's just move, remove two people from this process <laughs> and it becomes so much easier. Um, you know, like there, there's really simple ways to, to get an innovation that doesn't require a ton of investment, um, or, you know, a ton of resources or a big change. Um, one of the things we like to do in, in some of our design thinking activities 
is this method called alternative worlds, which is basically like, you know, step outside of the world you live in and, and adopt another world where um, perhaps that world means that there are no financial constraints or there are no technology constraints or um, sometimes we use like other businesses as an alternative world. But um, that usually comes up with the most exciting ideas because you're, you're being asked to, um, you know, think about problems in a way that you or think about solutions really in a way that you're not used to. With no um, limits, no limitations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, I totally connect to that because I'm constantly, you know, even as a team leader, sometimes you are running out of ideas to motivate people, right? So sometimes mm -hmm. it's like, let's just take the limits off, guys. I know we have a budget, I know, but let's just have a conversation about what it is that you would do if you had no limits, right? Mm -hmm. And how would we solve it? And so what, what piece of that can we do and apply to the budget that we have, right? Exactly. Um, and so I love being able to do that. And so hearing you say that means, oh, I'm not too far off, right, from design thinking, right. <laughs> or who are humans? You're, you're not, I mean, and what you were just talking about also underscores the, the, the importance of collaboration, because somebody might have this, you know, far-fetched idea, um, but then you, you know, the benefit of having other people involved in the conversation is you can help them figure out how to bring that into a space that we could do it today. Um, so yeah, I, all those things <laughs> working together. Yeah. It innovation. helps shape the, yes, it helps shape the, the idea and it doesn't, you know, stifle creativity. Um, but you know, what is your suggestion or your statement to it? That just takes too much time. That just takes too much time. We don't have time for that. We've got to get this solution or we've got to have this, this response to these problems in the next 90 days. That feels like more of a six month, nine month uh, project. How do you um, incorporate the design thinking concepts and apply them um, quickly? Because I, I love, I think earlier you were saying you can be efficiently, you can efficiently collaborate, which means it doesn't have to take you all day, all night, all just like user research, you know, it doesn't have to take an incredible amount of time. But so what would you say to that? Yeah, well, I get, I get requests like that a lot. And I think there are things that you can do in a compressed timeline. And I, but I also think that there are, um, compromises or um, things that you're choosing not to do that perhaps you should do when you choose to do things on a compressed timeline. So that's not to say that like, you know, you can get to, you can still practice design thinking and human-centered design on a compressed timeline. Um, you know, and obviously it, it very much depends on what you're being asked to do with that timeline and how much access you have to your users and all of that kind of thing. Um, you can do a lot of things on a compressed timeline, but I also think sometimes, you know, we're afraid to push back on the timeline as well. Um, you know, it, it, my tactic for that is often, you know, like, hey, I can get you to this place um, within the timeline that you, you've given me. Um, but I can get you to this place, which is a lot better <laughs> if you give me X amount more of time. Um, and, and really show them the difference in terms of the outcome you're going to get 
if you're given more time because I do think there there's sort of a I don't know I don't even know what I would I guess I would call it culture sometimes in corporate environments especially where deadlines are created because they can be you know like because you you just want things done sooner and so you know you it's sort of fictitious in some scenarios i wouldn't say it is in every scenario um but you know trying to show what you can get within that time period versus what you could get um you know if you had more time is really helpful um in terms of having that conversation um, with people. And then the other thing I would say is just when that ha happens and you got to, you know, sort of a less than uh, a, a solution that you feel like could have been better had you been given more time, use that as a way to advocate for yourself next time. You know, like in my experience, I've done it that way before and we sold ourselves short. <laughs> um, so I don't know, I think, I think a lot of those conversations can be had. You just have to be willing, willing to have them and push back on the- I the mean, timeline. just great, you know, like mm -hmm. to be great, great, great response to that because obviously if you're able mm -hmm. to share what your experiences have been and tie them mm -hmm. to the failures that have uh, ensued as a result of just pushing past, um, you know, logically, because I, I, I can't stand arbitrary deadlines. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense, right? Like, to why, why, why are we, you know what I mean? The simple question, right? Mm -hmm. Why are we doing it this way? So I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. So I would ask um, as kind of a closing conversation, what is your passion project right now? Oh, well, let's see. So um, I think one of my passions that, I, that I've been in, uh, involved in is um, cultivating the Pittsburgh design community. So I, I serve on um, the board of AIJ Pittsburgh and um, I meet so many people through my involvement in in that organization as well as other organizations in Pittsburgh as well as, you know, um meeting different professors at different institutions and and working with their students and, and things like that so i would say one of my passion projects is just cultivating uh what we were talking about at the beginning around like peer mentorship um in the community of pittsburgh um so so that's something i i really um you know enjoy doing um and then i would say something that's a little bit less uh <laughs> professional <laughs> in terms of uh, work sounding. Um, one of the things I started doing at the, the beginning of um, the pandemic, um, I, I was like, I really want to be a reader. Like I, I, my, I haven't, you know, I obviously I read things, but I've never been one to be like a book nerd, you know, in terms of just reading book after book. And I think some of it has to do with like the way my eyesight works. So I started um, listening to audiobooks while I was like walking around the neighborhood and that has been really great and like I, I set a goal of you know how many books I want to read this year and I, I will listen to <laughs> uh, this year um, and I really enjoyed that because I, I've been trying to pick like fictional narratives um, or biographical stories that like offer a perspective on life that's different from mine so they're enjoyable to listen to, but I'm also learning in the process. 
Um, so I would say that's the one thing I'm, I'm putting my time and attention into now is, is making time to, to listen to books. I think that's super cool because one of the things that I end up doing, like when I'm going on vacation is binge read at the beach, right? Mm -hmm. Because you don't yeah. have time. You want to, we don't make time for it. Right. We don't make time <laughs> for it. That's true. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes I'm like, oh, I should just get up at like five and, you know, read and work out. And then five comes and I'm like, but I was just up till two. Yeah, no. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's not happening. Yeah. It's not happening. So um, I just, you know, we just move on. But passion projects, I feel like fuel our, um, our work. They fuel our um, life purpose. And I think if as long as we continue to move towards um, at least having one passion project in our life, we're able to make, mm -hmm. um, you know, better choices, be more conscientious of people, um, mm -hmm. et cetera, in, in life. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for um, being a part of the podcast today. Any final thoughts? It was really fun talking to you. <laughs> uh, like, it, it's funny sometimes, you know, people ask you to be interviewed and it's sort of like, <sighs> that's pressure, but it, it's actually fun to be asked questions and have to think through how you're going to respond to them. Um, so, so thank you for that. Um, yeah. And I guess the only other thing I would say, just, you know, in tie with, uh, you know, what lights my fire is just making sure when you're working on a project or an experience that you're you're always trying to understand the people who are involved in it and, and solve it in a meaningful way. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Join us weekly for high impact episodes to help you grow, scale, and innovate your company. Find us online at nelsonlegacyenterprises.com.